Episode 32, Just Another Day in the Desert. Once the Israelites made it across the water in one piece, they then faced the challenges of the desert, from starvation to other nations attacking them, and it was only the beginning of their problems. Welcome to the History of the Bible podcast. After crossing the sea safely, the Israelites saw the bodies wash up on shore, and in Exodus 15, they sang a song praising the Lord for His great works, because God defeated the Egyptians in battle. It was ultimately the way of showing one nation's gods stronger than another nation. And even though the Israelites didn't fight whatsoever, the Lord fought for them against the king and his army. God showed himself as the God of gods. No one was greater than him. Moses then sets out with the Israelites to go into the wilderness, or desert, of Shur. And for three days they walked, but found no water until they reached Marah. Here the water was so bitter that it wasn't drinkable, and the Israelites complained against Moses. The name Marah means bitterness. When the people began to complain against Moses, he then turned and cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed Moses a log to throw into the waters, and when Moses did this, the water became sweet to drink. Some scholars try to point out that some trees are known for making water sweeter, taken away from the miracle that happened, but none of those trees or plants have been found on the Sinai Peninsula. From here, the Israelites journeyed again, farther into the desert. This would also mark the beginning of the Israelites complaining against Moses and God. From Mara, the Israelites traveled to Elam. From there, they traveled to the wilderness of Sin. The wilderness of Sin is on the east side of the Red Sea, and it's between Elam and Mount Sinai. But the Israelites wouldn't be able to make it without complaining. In Exodus 16, verse 3, it says that the Israelites complained by saying, Would that we have died by the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread until they were filled. The Israelites were wanting to have died with their bellies full in captivity rather than of starvation and freedom. When the Israelites left Egypt, they left with many herds of animals, cattle, and sheep, but they began to starve. Why couldn't they just eat the herds of animals? It could have been that the Israelites weren't starving yet, but that they could have foreseen a time when all of their herds had been eaten up and they would still have been in the desert. Or it could have been that the herds were thought of as sort of money in those days. The more herds you had, the better economically you were doing. So it could have been that they were unwilling to eat their livelihood. Although it isn't sure why they didn't want to eat their livestock, it wasn't the fact of them not having food that was the issue. It was their lack of faith in God providing for them. But the Lord is always faithful. So he told Moses that he was about to rain bread from heaven for the Israelites to eat. But the Lord gave them an interesting command. When the bread was to rain down from heaven, the people were only allowed to gather enough food for themselves for that day, no more. It was only on the sixth day that they were allowed to gather enough bread for two days. That way on the Sabbath, they could rest and not gather food. 
The bread would come in the mornings, and in the evenings, the Lord brought quail for the people to eat. That way they had meat in the evening and bread in the mornings. In Exodus 16, verse 16, it says that an omer was to be taken for each person. Today, the measurement of an omer is about the same as nine cups. So some families gathered a lot and other families gathered little. But it was all on the number of people within the family, as each person would receive nine cups worth of bread. None of the food was to be left over for the next day. Otherwise, it would begin to go bad and breed worms inside of it. There was a reason that God only allowed the Israelites to gather for one day. It was to build their trust in God. They would try to gather more food than they needed, but it would turn bad, so they couldn't store up food for later on in their travels. They had to trust God every day to bring them their food. Later on, Jesus would teach the disciples to pray just for today's needs when he said, Give us our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. God knew how much each person needed to have to live off of. But the manna was also a portrayal of Jesus being the bread of life that would provide eternal nourishment to our souls. The Israelites would call the bread from heaven manna, but the translation of the word manna means, what is it? You see, the Israelites had never seen anything like it before. When mornings came, it would bring a dew on the ground, and when the dew dried upon the ground, it would leave a thin, flaky-like covering over the ground. The Bible says that manna tasted like wafers with honey, and it looked like white coriander seed. For the rest of Israel's wandering in the desert for the next 40 years, they would have manna to eat. After being fed and water in the wilderness of sin, the Lord tells the Israelites to move. This time, they would camp at Rephidim, which is still along the way to Mount Sinai. But again, there is no water for them. And again, the Israelites complain to Moses and God. When the Israelites complain, they tend to point out how good they had it in Egypt, even though they were slaves. But at least they knew that they were going to be fed in their minds. So Moses comes before God, asking him what to do. Because in Exodus 17, verse 4, Moses says that the people are ready to stone him. After all, they didn't have water. When the Israelites complain to Moses and God, it isn't just a little grumbling and muttering something under their breath. It could have turned to violence. So the Lord tells Moses to bring some of the elders of Israel and bring them before a rock at Horeb. Here, Moses was to strike a rock with his staff that he used in Egypt, and from the rock will come forth water. This is what Moses did. Before the elders of Israel, he struck a rock and water came forth, enough for all of Israel to be satisfied. Moses then would name the place Masa and Meribah, which means testing and complaining. While the Israelites were camped at Rephidim, the Amalekites came up to fight against the Israelites. In Genesis 36, verse 12 and verse 16, Amalek was the grandson of Esau and chief of the Eliphaz family living in the land of Edom. They were nomads, always on the move with their large herds finding the best pasture lands for feed. Although they were part of Esau's family, who would later on become known as the Edomites, 
The Amalekites would become their own tribe, but they wouldn't ever be as powerful as the Edomites were. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, it says that when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, that they attacked the faint and weary in the back. Usually it would have been the women and children in the back as they traveled. The Amalekites seemed to practice a guerrilla type of warfare against the Israelites, surprise attacking the back of the company of travelers who were the weakest and most vulnerable. In that same verse, it mentions that there were a people that did not fear God, and it is thought that the Amalekites were brutal to those that they killed and captured and mutilated the bodies that were taken in battle. It is also believed that the Amalekites would use witchcraft to try and gain the upper hand in battle so that they would bring back the victory. So it was decided Moses would have Joshua go out and fight the Amalekites. More will be on Joshua at a later time, but for now, Joshua was in charge of the Israelites' military. But it needs to be remembered that the Israelites had just come out of being in slavery for many generations. These men did not have the mentality of warriors, but of enslaved people and servants. But they went out and fought against the Amalekites. While the battle was going on, Moses stood atop of a nearby hill with the staff of the Lord in his hands. Whenever Moses held his hands up, the Israelites would prevail against the Amalekites. But when Moses' arms fell, the Israelites would begin to lose the battle. The position of Moses holding his hands up is thought to be either of two things. The first thought is that with Moses having his hands up, he is in a position of prayer to God. This would have been seen that Moses was interceding for the Israelites in prayer against the Amalekites during the battle. The other thought regarding Moses' position is that he was standing with his hands up while holding the staff as a banner of victory. Because in Exodus 17 verse 15, Moses built an altar after the battle and named it, The Lord is my banner. This is why it is thought that the position that Moses took up on the hill was so that he could be seen by the Israelites raising the staff with a banner of victory in declaration over the battle. To help Moses out, Aaron and Hur brought a rock for Moses to sit on and they would stand on either side of Moses helping to support his hands up. This allowed Moses to keep his hands up for the rest of the day until sundown and because of this, his hands staying up Joshua was able to defeat the Amalekites with the sword. Aaron being the brother of Moses and being his mouthpiece for him in Egypt, it made sense that he would support Moses by holding his hands up. But her has never been mentioned until now. Not much is known about him. What is known is that her was from the tribe of Judah, the son of Caleb, who will become important later on in the journey to the promised land. Some Jewish traditions place her as the son of Miriam, or even the husband of Miriam. Miriam is the sister of Moses and Aaron. Another tradition places her as being in charge with Aaron when Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and was murdered by the people so that Aaron would make them a golden image. In regards to the battle, it wouldn't be the end of the conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. 
In Exodus 17, verse 14, the Lord tells Moses and Joshua that one day the Amalekites will be completely removed from being a people and that there will be war between the two nations from generation to generation. But that promise wouldn't be completely fulfilled until hundreds of years later. Meanwhile, after the battle, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian, heard of all that God had done for the Israelites and decided to meet Moses with his wife and two sons. Even though his wife and two sons began the journey, Moses sent them back to his father-in-law's house while Moses was in Egypt. When Jethro showed up, Moses brought him into his tent and related all the events that God had done for Israel in delivering them from bondage. With this, Jethro rejoiced for what the Lord had done and offered a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. Aaron, the elders of Israel, Moses, and his father-in-law all joined together in the sacrificial meal that was held after the burnt offering. While Jethro was in the camp of the Israelites, Moses took a seat as judge for the people. It was Moses' job to make judgment when the people came to him because they wanted to inquire of the Lord. But Jethro knew that this style of decision-making, all being placed on one man, would wear Moses out and prevent him from doing what he was called to do, lead the Israelites. In ancient times, when there was a king or a chieftain, it was also considered by the people that it was the job and duty of the leader to make decisions and judgments on cases that were brought to him by the people. This is what Moses did. He would judge and decide between two people, and then he would make known the law of God. But Jethro would suggest something that went against the norm in those times. He would say, continue doing what Moses was doing already, making known the laws of God. But instead of trying to decide on every case, Jethro suggested having men that were trusted in place to decide on cases of a group of a thousand, hundreds, the fifties, and tens. Jethro was saying to have men that it was their job to decide the case of that group of men, no matter the size. They would do that group only. Only the hard and bigger cases would be brought to Moses. The rest of them were decided by the judge of that group. Moses would take the suggestion of his father-in-law and place these men in charge of different sized groups so that it would free up Moses and would not burden him down. After this, Jethro would return to his land. The Israelites would then march on to Mount Sinai, and here Moses would receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. So join us next time in episode 33, Mount Sinai, as the Israelites finally get to meet the God that brought them out of Egypt. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible podcast. We want to hear from you on how this podcast has impacted you. Please check out the links in the show notes. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.